Preface and Introduction to the Letters of a Portuguese Nun. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Letters of a Portuguese Nun by Mariana Coforado. Translated by Edgar Prestage. Preface. My attempt at an English rendering of the letters is, I think, the first, since the days of Ball's Letters from a Portuguese Nun to an Officer in the French Army, London, 1808. Footnote. An American translation was published in 1890. End of footnote. But during the two centuries which have elapsed since their first publication, quite a small literature has grown up around them, and they have been turned into several European tongues, the French editions alone amounting to more than thirty. If the numerous so-called replies and imitations were added to this reckoning, the number would be nearly doubled, and this without taking into account the critiques and studies which have appeared about them. I do not propose here to enter into a comparison of the letters with those of Heloise, as many writers have done, but shall content myself with referring the curious to the excellent work of Sr. Cordeiro, Soror Mariana, a Freira Portuguesa, Lisbon, 1888, 2nd edition, 1891. It is from him that I have learned nearly all that I know about Mariana, and in my introduction I have made a liberal use of his book, as well as of M. Asse's preface to the edition of the Lettres Portugaises avec les Réponses, Paris, 1889, upon which I have based my rendering. If my translation should arouse any interest in things Portuguese, and lead others to read and make versions of such masterpieces of the world's literature as the Frei Luís de Souza and the Folhas Caídas of Garret, or the poems of João de Deus, I should be more than rewarded for any trouble the present work may have cost me. But who can hope to succeed where Burton has apparently failed? The English public, and the critics, too, will probably continue to believe that there is nothing worth reading in Portuguese literature with the exception of the Lusiads. Here, too, there is perhaps a lesson to be learned from the Germans, especially from such as Storck, Reinhard Stittner, and Michaelis de Vasconcelos. I should like to thank Mr. York Powell of Christ Church for the kind help which he has given me in the difficult task of translation. My aim has been throughout to keep as close to the French text as possible, seeing that the original Portuguese is lost, aided by the masterly retranslation of Senhor Cordeiro. L'Etrange's version, Five Love Letters from a Nun to a Cavalier, London, 1678, is somewhat free at times, but it has aided me in the third letter. I have followed Cordeiro in his rearrangement of the order of the letters, the second and fourth changing places. The historical facts which concern the hero and heroine of these letters I have given briefly in the introduction, and a bibliography and appendix will be found at the end of the volume. The text of the first French edition of 1669 has been copied in Paris purposely for this work, and will, it is hoped, add much to its interest and value. And so I deliver poor Mariana's passionate epistles to the consideration of those who can appreciate them and feel for her. And weeping then she made her moan, The night comes on that knows no morn, When I shall cease to be alone, To live forgotten and love forlorn. Edgar Prestige, Bowdoin, 1892
Introduction. Fuid los deleites, pues non da deleite perfecto, nin bueno, nin tampoco sano. A todos engaña su falso afeite, sin sentir mata el su gozo vano. A todos ariendan del bien soberano, jamás no aplacen que no den tristeza. Aforjan cadenas del sotil volcano, con que encarcelan a toda nobleza. Cancioneiro de Resende in 1663, said Saint Beuve, it became the policy of Louis the Fourteenth to help Portugal against Spain, but the succor which he gave was indirect. Subsidies were secretly furnished, the levying of troops was favored, and a crowd of volunteers hastened there. Between this small army, commanded by Schomberg, and the feeble Spanish troops which disputed the soil with it, there were each summer many marches and counter-marches, with but few results, many skirmishes and small fights, and among the latter perhaps one victory. Who troubles himself about it now? The curious reader, however, who only looks to his own pleasure, cannot help saying that all this was good, since the letters of the Portuguese nun grew from it. As St. Beuve indicates, the subject of the letters forms one of the episodes of the war between Spain and Portugal, which followed as a consequence of the restoration of 1640 and the achievement of the latter's independence under the house of Braganza. This war, which lasted for twenty-eight years until the final peace in 1668, was intermittent and carried on only at long intervals owing to the state of the two contending parties. Spain had now entered on the period of her decline, and Portugal was in a hardly better condition after her sixty years' captivity and the exhaustion of her forces which had taken place during the reign of Philip the Fourth. Owing, however, to the aid of France, she had been enabled to hold her own up to 1659. But the news of the peace of the Pyrenees seemed at first to take from her all hope of preserving her hardly-won autonomy. Yet, in spite of this, Mazarin, while signing the clause which bound France to abandon the Portuguese cause, determined, with his usual duplicity, that this should not prevent him from secretly aiding an ally whom he had found so useful in the past as a thorn in the side of Spain. Hardly, indeed, had the treaty been made then he began to occupy himself in recruiting for the Portuguese service a number of French officers whom the peace had left without employment. Among these, the chief was Schomberg, who went to Lisbon in 1660 as commander-in-chief and to reorganize the Portuguese army. It was not, however, until 1663 that the hero of the letters, Noel Bouton, afterwards Marquis of Chamilly and Saint-Léger, arrived in the country, which he was to leave four years later, with the betrayal of a poor nun as his title to fame. For at the time when Schomberg was already there, we see Chamilly, as he is generally called, assisting at the marriage of his brother to Catherine, le Conde de Nonin, referred to in the text, letter two. Three years afterwards, finding himself without military employment in France, he came to Portugal, attracted probably, like so many others, by the reputation of the great captain, with whom he had doubtless established friendly relations during the campaign in Flanders, 1656-58. to 58. Our hero, if hero he may be called, 
was the eleventh son of Nicolas Bouton, lord of Chamilly, Charangeroux, and later on Saint-Léger, properties of modest size in Burgundy. His family was good, but its attachment to the princes of Condé during the Fronde had compromised its position and damaged its fortunes. Noel, the future Marquis, was born in 1636, and as soon as his age allowed, he entered on a military career. He served through the Flanders campaign under Touraine, and in 1658 was made captain under the name of the Count of Chamilly in Mazarin's regiment of cavalry. Reaching Portugal at the end of 1663, or the commencement of 1664, he was given the same rank in a regiment commanded by a French officer of note, Riquemot. Although his name is not mentioned in any of the contemporary notices of the war, we know that he was present at the siege of Valença de Alcântara, June 1664, at the Battle of Castelo Rodrigo, in the same month and year, at that of Montes Claros, June 1665, and at the principal sieges which occupied the next two years. In 1665 he was promoted to the rank of colonel, and two years later a diploma of Louis XIV, issued perhaps at the instance of his brother, the governor of Dijon, gave Chamilly a similar post in the French army, with the evident intention of enabling him to leave the Portuguese service when he liked, even though the war with Spain should not be ended. This, taken together with the fact that in the document the space for the month is left blank, is extremely significant, and, as will be seen later on, certainly connects itself with the episode of the letters, even if it does not enter into their actual history. The diploma of Louis XIV, it may be added, is dated 1667, and the sudden departure of Chamilly took place at the end of that year, so that it seems probable that the French captain, fearing future annoyance or even danger to himself from his liaison, had determined to secure a safe retreat. But let us look for a moment at the authoress of the famous Portuguese letters. Mariana Alcoforado was born of a good family in the city of Beja, and province of Alentejo, in the year 1640. Her father appears to us in the first years of the Restoration as a man in an influential position, well-related, and discharging important commissions both administrative and political. He possessed a large agricultural property, which he administered with attention and even zeal, and was a cavalier of the Order of Christ, besides being intimate with some of the principal men of the time. He had six children, of whom Mariana, according to Cordeiro, was the second. Life in Beja at that time seems to have been sufficiently insecure, owing to the fact that the province of which it was one of the chief cities formed the theatre of the war and Beja itself was the chief garrison town. Tumults were constantly arising from quarrels between the various parts of the heterogeneous mass which then composed the Portuguese army, and hence increased care would be necessary on the part of Francisco Alcoforado in order that the education of his daughters might be conducted in such a manner as their position demanded. Hence, too, probably, the reason why Mariana and her sister Catherine entered the convent of the Conception at an earlier age than was usual. Their father, occupied with administrative and military work on the frontier, would be unable to give them the oversight and attention which quieter times would have allowed. The convent of the Conception at Beja 
was founded in 1467 by the parents of King Emmanuel the Fortunate, and favored successively by royal and private devotion, it had become one of the most important and wealthy institutions of its kind in Portugal. It was situated at the extreme south of the city, near to the ancient walls, and looked on to the gates still called of Mertola, because they are on the side of the city towards Mertola, distant fifty-four kilometers to the southwest on the right bank of the Guadiana. There is still to be seen the remains of the balcony or veranda from which Mariana first caught sight of Chamilly, probably during some military evolutions, confer letter two, and from it a good view may be obtained over the plains of Alentejo as they stretch away to the south. Curiously enough, the tradition of Mariana and her fatal love has been perpetuated in the convent, in spite of the attempts, natural enough, on the part of monastic chroniclers and such like to hide all traces of it. In this, as in most other convents, there were two kinds of cells, the dormitories divided into cubicles, and rooms forming independent abodes, dispersed throughout the edifice. These latter the nuns of the seventeenth century called their houses, as suas casas, and it was one of these which Mariana possessed. The former were in accordance with the constitutions, while the latter, though strictly forbidden, nevertheless existed. These separate abodes were, it is true, often necessitated by the growth of the convent population, and generally appertained to nuns of a better position, while the dormitories served for those who were either poorer or of an inferior rank. Many of these casas, too, were built by private individuals, who had some connection or other with the particular convent, and there are indications that the father of Mariana had caused some to be erected in that of the conception. From the year 1665 to 1667, then, Beja was, as we have said, the center of the various military movements in which Chamilly took part under the leadership of Schomburg, and there is no doubt that he spent much of his time there. Mariana was twenty-five years old. She had been entrusted to the cloister when a child, as she herself tells us, and her renunciation of the world must have been little more than a form. She had probably made her profession, too, at the age of sixteen, that provided for by the constitutions, if not at an earlier date. The dull routine of her life was suddenly broken in upon by the sight of a man, surrounded with all the prestige of military glory one who was the first to awaken in her a consciousness of her own beauty, the first to tell her that he loved her, one, moreover, who was ready to throw all his greatness, his present and his future, at her feet. I was young, I was trustful, I had been shut up in this convent since my childhood, I had only seen people whom I did not care for, I had never heard the praises which you constantly gave me, Methought I owed you the charms and the beauty which you found in me, and which you were the first to make me perceive. I heard you well talked of. Everyone spoke in your favor. You did all that was necessary to awaken love in me. Footnote. Letter 5. End of footnote. Such is her simple confession, and, comments Cordeiro, nothing more natural. Their first meeting was probably due to the relations which Chamilly, an officer of rank, 
had entered into with the Alcoforados, one of the chief families in Beja. There are indications, indeed, that Chamilly and Mariana's eldest brother had met, doubtless in the field, for the latter also followed the profession of arms, and this brother, named Baltazar Vaz Alcoforado, is probably the same as the brother referred to in the letters as the lovers go between. It was for his benefit that Mariana's father had striven for years to build up an estate which was to be entailed on his offspring. But in the year 1669, just at the very time of the great sensation caused by the publication of the letters in Paris, Balthazar abandoned his military career and all his brilliant prospects in the world to enter the priesthood. It is impossible not to hazard a guess, although we know nothing for certain on the point, that his motive for so doing was connected in some way with the almost tragic ending of the liaison between his sister and the French captain. But to return, the customs of the time, curiously enough, allowed a greater relative liberty to nuns as regards the visits which might be paid them than to married women, or, as the bishop of Grampara puts it, the liberty of the grating was wide in those miserable times. We cannot, of course, be expected to give an account of the progress of this liaison, nor do we wish to indulge in romantic hypotheses. Chamilly was thirty at the time when he first saw Mariana. Brought up as he had been to war as a trade, a man of small intelligence and few scruples, the intrigue would be a pleasant diversion, a means pour passer le temps, which he would otherwise have found dull enough in the Portuguese provincial town after the Paris of Le Grand Monarque. The seduction and desertion of a poor nun must have seemed all so perfectly natural to one brought up in contact with the loose morality of camp life and in the friends of Louis the Fourteenth. In June 1667, the authorities of Beja received an answer from the new king, Dom Pedro, to the complaint which they had made of the oppression which the French cavalry continued to exercise on this people. Already, on account of similar complaints, Schomberg had been ordered to move his cavalry from the town and district, but he had disobeyed these orders for strategic reasons. Now, we have already seen that it was between 1665 and 1667 that Chamilly carried on his intrigue with Mariana, and it is just in 1667 that the scandal must have attained greater proportions, coinciding with an ending, not in the withdrawal of the French cavalry, but in the sudden retirement of Chamilly to France. But what, it may be asked, was the reason for the king's order, and what could those oppressions have been in an important city, where presumably there was a regular and well-appointed police administration? Has it not a relation, asks Cordeiro, with the incident in the letters, which would both afflict and irritate the influential family of the nun and the good burgesses of Beja? The special situation of the French captain, on the other hand, his interest in not aggravating the scandal and the peril for the religious herself in the adoption of violent means, would all naturally counsel the withdrawal of Chamilly. The danger of remaining longer in Beja was not in the nature of those which the French colonel could confront with his recognized courage. If he were surprised in the convent, if he were denounced as its violator 
and as the seducer of a nun, the daughter of a well-known family, and one, too, which was on excellent terms with the new sovereign. Neither his own position nor the protection of Schomberg would avail him, since both the one and the other began to lose their importance with the approach of peace. However this may be, certain it is that Chamilly's own excuses for departure referred to in the letters were merely empty pretexts, and a reference to the history of the time will show this. If Louis the Fourteenth needed his presence so much for the invasion of Franche-Comté, why not, it may be asked, for the important campaign in Flanders in 1667? He seems to have left Portugal, too, a little clandestinely, for no notice is to be met with, as in the case of other French officers, of his asking and obtaining leave from the Portuguese government, and he probably did not even embark in Lisbon. Already in the beginning of February 1668, we find him with Louis the Fourteenth in Dijon, so that he must have quitted Beja and the seat of war quite at the end of the preceding year. It is now that the letters enter into the history of the lives of Mariana and Noel Bouton de Chamilly. As is well known, they were all written after the latter's retirement from Portugal, and probably between the December of 1667 and the June of 1668, and they express better than any remarks which we could make the stages of faith, doubt, and despair through which poor Mariana passed. As a piece of unconscious, though self-made, psychological analysis, they are unsurpassed. As a product of the peninsular heart, they are unrivaled. They are not, as Teófilo Braga calls them, the only beautiful work produced by his countrymen in the seventeenth century. They are, at any rate, by far the most beautiful. To compare them as regards literary form with those of Heloise would be manifestly unfair. The situation of the two women was so different. Footnote. For a good comparison of the letters of Mariana and Heloise, see an article entitled La Eloisa Portuguesa in the June number of the review España Moderna, 1889, written by Emilia Pardo Bassan. End of footnote. Think of the abbess of the Paraclete, mistress of all the learning of the time, and surrounded by things to console her, or at least to divert her attention, and then regard poor Mariana, persecuted by her family, and liable to the tender mercies of the Inquisition, with none of the comforts, none of the consolations of the former. But if the letters of Heloise are superior to those of Mariana, from the point of view of correctness of expression and style, they are inferior in all else. The nuns are far more natural, and therefore more beautiful, and the very confusion of feelings and ideas which we should expect from one in her position rather adds to their charm. Finally, the moral character of Heloise, as displayed in her epistles, cannot certainly be placed beside that of the Portuguese nun with any advantage. Henceforth, we only meet with the name of Mariana at intervals, once in 1668, again in 1676, and 1709, and lastly in an obituary notice in 1723. She, at any rate, is not an example of the well-known saying of Cervantes, the Portuguese die of love. It is true that some words at the end of the fifth letter seem to suggest suicide, but there is, on the other hand, throughout the whole of these ultima verba, 
an expression of energy and of her determination to tread underfoot if she cannot extinguish the flames of her passion mariana came of a vigorous race and in spite of the great infirmities of which her obituary speaks she lived as we shall see to the age of fourscore years and three she was made portress as mentioned in the letters at the beginning of sixteen sixty eight no doubt to distract her mind by giving her some definite occupation and a sense of responsibility it is however significant as cordeiro remarks that we do not find the name of mariana a daughter of one of the principal and most influential families in beja filling any more elevated post whereas her younger sister peregrina maria appears in the conventual register as both amanuensis and abbess this sister before professing in the same convent in sixteen seventy six made her will being more than twelve years of age and there she spoke of the many obligations which she owed mariana for having brought her up from the age of three years her entering the conception at such an early age is explained by the fact of the death of her mother which took place at the end of sixteen sixty three or the beginning of sixteen sixty four again in seventeen o nine mariana is mentioned as beaten by only ten votes in an election for the office of abbess by a certain nun of the name of joana de bouillon of whom nothing is known the next time we hear of her is in seventeen twenty three the date of her death the obituary notice speaks for itself and for her life since the episode which the letters contain and needs no comment on the twenty-eighth day of the month of july in the year seventeen twenty three died in this royal convent of our lady of the conception mother dona mariana alconforada at the age of eighty-seven years all of which she spent in the service of god she was always very regular in the choir and at the confraternities and withal fulfilled her other obligations she was very exemplary and none had fault to find with her for she was very kind to all for thirty years she did rigid penance and suffered great infirmities with much conformity desiring to have more to suffer when she knew that her last hour was come she asked for all the sacraments which she received in a state of perfect consciousness giving many thanks to god for having received them thus she ended her life with all the signs of predestination speaking up to the last hour in proof of which i dona anya sofia batista de almeida amanuensis of the convent wrote this which i signed on the same day month and year as above dona anna sofia batista de almeida amanuensis no such obscurity as that which hangs over the life of mariana hides the doings of chamilly after his return to france acts like the famous defence of grave in sixteen seventy four against the prince of orange and that of Oudenarde two years later marked him out for future distinction but if he knew how to defend towns he no less could attack and take them he distinguished himself greatly at the sieges of gand condé ypres and heidelberg and in seventeen o three received the recompense of his great services being made a marshal of france m asse tells several anecdotes about him which seem to show that he was a generous man as well as a brave soldier united in sixteen seventy one by a mariage de convenance to a lady who according to s simon was far from being gifted with personal beauty 
he was always a most exemplary husband. As Simon, who knew him well, also tells us that Chamilly was the best man in the world, the bravest and the most honorable. He says, too, that no one after seeing him or hearing him speak could understand how he had inspired such an unmeasured love as that revealed in the famous letters. How, then, are we to reconcile the Chamilly of the letters with the men of whom his contemporaries and friends speak so highly? The publication of the epistles of Mariana was doubtless due to vanity, a fault which we may certainly credit Chamilly with possessing. It was, too, the custom in seventeenth-century France to hand round copies of letters, either received or written, for the admiration of France, and thus, what now appears to us a brutal and cynical want of confidence, was then the most natural thing in the world. It is not, however, so easy, even if it is possible, to excuse the conduct of the French captain in the betrayal and desertion of poor Mariana. Posterity, as M. Asse says, especially the feminine portion, has condemned him, and there seems to be no reason why we should seek to reverse the verdict. It was in 1669 that the first edition of what we know as the Portuguese Letters was published by Claude Barbin, the well-known Parisian bookseller. The translation seems to have been made towards the middle of the year preceding, and shortly after the return of Chamilly to France. The letters were evidently shown by their possessor as one of those trophies, or at least souvenirs, which persons are accustomed to bring back with them from a foreign country. The incognito, however, was complete, and neither the name of the recipient nor that of their translator was inscribed on this editio princeps. That of Mariana, indeed, the authoress, was not known until early in this present century, when, in 1810, Boissonade discovered her name, written in a copy of the edition of 1669 by a contemporary hand. The veracity of this note has since been placed beyond doubt by the recent researches of Senhor Cordeiro, who has shown the persistence of a tradition in Beja connecting the French captain and the Portuguese nun. The success of the first edition was rapid and complete. A second by Barbin, and two in foreign countries, one in Amsterdam, the other in Cologne, all in the same year, attest this. The success, indeed, took such proportions that from the mutual rivalry of authors and publishers there sprung up a new kind of literature, that of Le Portugaise. The five letters of the nun had followers like most successful romances, and the title of Portuguese letters became a generic name, applying not only to the imitations which amplified subsequent editions, but also to every kind of correspondence where passion was shown tout nu. Brancas, says Madame de Sévigné, has written me a letter so excessively tender as to make up for all his past neglect. He speaks to me from his heart in every line. If I were to reply to him in the same tone, c'est ce roi in Portuguese. In the same year, 1669, Barbin issued a second part of the Portuguese letters, which was counterfeited shortly afterwards at Cologne, as the real ones had been. This was written, we are told in the preface, by a femme du monde, and its publication was suggested by the favor with which the letters of the nun had been received. The publisher counted, as he said, 
on the difference of style which distinguished these fresh letters from the original ones to assure a success as great as the first five had obtained after the second part came the so-called replies all in the same year and their publisher tells us in the preface that he is assured that the gentleman who wrote them has returned to portugal shortly afterwards appeared the new replies but this time they were given for what they were a jeu d'esprit for which the example of aulus silenus writing replies to the heroides of ovid and above all the beauty of the first portuguese letters should serve as an excuse the motive then for the production of the second part of the portuguese letters as for that of the new replies is satisfactorily explained but how about the replies themselves can we not account for them by supposing that it was felt necessary on the part of the friends of chamilly to attenuate the sympathy expressed on all sides for the unfortunate nun and the censure which must naturally have followed such a base betrayal hence proceeds senhor cordeiro the author of this suggestion the publication of these replies whose capital idea is to show us the seducer of mariana under a perfectly different aspect and character from that which readers of the letters would naturally attribute to him however this may be it was not long before the name of their hero came to be printed in editions of the letters though curiously enough it was first divulged in an edition printed abroad in cologne in 1669 a copy of which is to be found in the british museum marked 1085 b period 5 2 in parenthesis containing the following the name of him to whom they the letters were written is the chevalier de chamilly and the name of him who made the translation is Cuirac. more strange still the french editions of the letters preserved a discreet silence as to the name of the recipient with the exception of the 1671 edition of the replies until the year 1690 when a similar notice to that above referred to as being in the cologne edition was made public so that even in chamilly's lifetime his name was appended to editions of the letters as their recipient and as far as we know he never denied the authenticity of the ascription the question as to whether the letters were originally written in french or whether they are a translation hardly needs discussion here for the principal critics both french and portuguese Dorat, Malherbe, Filinto Elisio, and Souza Botelho have unanimously decided from the text itself that they are a translation, and a bad one. The last named says, A Portuguese, or indeed anyone knowing that language, cannot doubt but that the five letters of the nun have been translated almost literally from a Portuguese original. The construction of many of the phrases is such that, if retranslated word for word, they are found to be entirely in harmony with the genius and character of that language. But it is just this baldness for which we should all be truly thankful, because we are thus enabled to listen to what Mariana said, and hear how she said it. Had the translation been what the seventeenth century would have called a good one, we should have known Monsieur Guilherac well enough, it is true, but only seen the nun darkly as through a glass as to the present version the author can only add to what he has already said in the preface by confessing that he feels its inadequacy 
as much as any of his critics will doubtless do. At the same time, however, if its result be to excite competition and call forth a better one, his labor will not, he thinks, have been in vain. End of Preface and Introduction, 1870-1882